Well, I get to greet our Cedar Lake campus and HP campus. Uh, We are joining together in our teaching time, and uh, we certainly hope the Lord's blessing your service and um, your campus, even as we have that going on here at Crown Point. Good morning, everybody. You know, uh, we have been doing this series on the Psalms this summer, and uh, it takes a lot of coordination, just any of these series that we do to decide, for example, what psalm is being preached which weekend, which person is preaching it that weekend at what campus, and it's, there's a lot more to it than you, may, than you may suspect, which is what I think makes the timing of this psalm uh, this weekend so uh, powerful, because back in the spring, we had no idea that this week in our country would be what it has been. We had no idea that roughly a week ago there would be a protest and a counter-protest in Charlottesville, Virginia. We didn't know that people would be injured and die. We didn't know that it would spark a national debate, or should I say feud, as has been going on these last days. And We certainly didn't know that when we picked Psalm 139 for this weekend, that it would be the perfect biblical response to all of this noise and all of this discord that is going on in the world around us. We had no idea that it would give this perfect answer to the divide in our nation over hate and love, race and bigotry, and the value of human life and dignity. We didn't know that. We also didn't know that the Women's Center was going to be here today, which is just another one. We'll throw that on the pile of all the other things we didn't know, and yet how perfectly this is all coming together. We call this the providence of God, that God has uh, aligned all of these circumstances for us here this weekend at Bethel Church. So we're going to get to those front page issues in this message, but we're going to be led there by the words of the psalm, Psalm 139, a psalm attributed to David. It is beautiful. It is insightful. It is a worthy expression of this artist's understanding of God, his ability to use lyric and language and art to express theology in a way that appeals not just to the mind, but also to the heart. And that's one of the powerful things about art. And I, we've said this throughout the series. Remember, the Psalms are songs, okay? They are songs. They were meant to be sung, and they are poetic language, which uh, gets past our sort of mental defenses and moves down into our hearts and into our affections. This is part of the the, the beauty of of art. In fact, I remember when I was in college, we were required to take this um, art appreciation class. I remember being bored to tears in that class because you'd sit there and they'd put this painting up on the screen and then the next painting up and the professor would analyze the painting you know, the brush stroke here and the color there and the this and the that. And, you know, the, the room was dark. It may have been after lunch. I don't remember. In fact, I don't really remember the class at all, hardly, because maybe I was sleeping or maybe I just was suppressing it because it was kind of like death by analysis, right? Art 
is more than the sum of its parts. That's the, the power of it and the, and the beauty of, of art. And this psalm is like that. It is, uh, we're going to analyze it. I'm going to try to take it apart for you today. But it is itself a powerful artistic expression of theology, one of the very best in all of the Bible. And we see uh, David here in his, his heart and his, the depth of his heart as an artist and a theologian and the breadth of it and the beauty of it. Is it no wonder that artists always have girlfriends? Have you noticed that? They always have girlfriends. There's something appealing about the art and the artist. There's a certain mystery about how it communicates to us. Now, you notice that my sermon title today uh, is fill in the blank. You see that? Okay? Fill in the blank. Our God blank every blank. Now, just to help the OCD people here who are going to be all like, I got to fill in the blanks. I want to tell you what all the blanks are in advance so you don't have to be like fretting about it. So here are the blanks. The first is that our God knows everything. This is Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Verses 8 through 12, our God is everywhere. And verses 13 through 24, our God made everyone. Okay? So our God knows everything. Our God is everywhere. Our God made everyone. We begin now, Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Okay, we'll stop there. Our God knows everything. You know, in addition to being poetic, this psalm is highly personal. And I don't know if you heard that in the personal pronouns, even in this section, taking them in order. Me, me, I, I, my, 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 and so on. What is David doing here? David is doing what God wants us to do with who he is. He is personalizing the nature of God. He is applying it to his life. He's thinking about what God is like and the difference that that makes in his life. That's a good discipline for all of us to do. This is what keeps who God is from being sort of this like, you know, philosophical, theoretical sort of thing. And it brings it right down into our life. And that's the reality right? Who God is does make a difference in our life, whether we acknowledge it or not. But by acknowledging it and meditating on it and personalizing it, now the greatness of God and his character becomes a part of my daily life and reality. Now look at the extent here that he does this. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You have sat down and risen up how many times already today? You probably didn't think anything about it. God was thinking about it. He noticed when you sat down and when you rose up. Verse three, my lying down. We may not go to bed thinking about God or praying a bedtime prayer, but God's thinking about us. He's noting that moment when we lie down. His watch care over us, right down to our sleep schedule. God's eye is upon us. 
And the summary in verse 3, you are acquainted with all my ways. Think of it, friend. The God of heaven knows everything about your day, knows everything about your schedule, knows everything that you're going through, knows all of those things so perfectly, so intimately. He knows everything about our lives, even to the extent, verse 2, he knows our thoughts. You discern my thoughts from afar. Did you realize that God knows what you're thinking? Not just what you're doing, like a camera watching, he knows what you're thinking. In fact, not only does he know what you're thinking, he knows what you're going to think and what you're going to say, even before you think it and even before you say it. That's verse four. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Wait a second, how can God know something that hasn't even happened yet? Well, this is where God's character, his knowledge, is tied to his eternality. Okay, God is eternal. He transcends time. What is time? Time is these seconds, one after another. We're experiencing them right now. Okay, tick, 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 tick. He created that reality that we call time, that we, that we dwell within, he is both in time, but he transcends time. So that for God, you know, for us, it's, it's you know, what is the date today? August 20th, 2017. What, is the, what's, what date is on God's phone when he looks at it? You could say, well, I think it's probably August 20th. Yes, but he transcends time. So... Every day is like today for him. In a sense, you could say that he is in this day, he is in yesterday, he is in tomorrow. He is not bound by time. And he knows everything that is and that was and that will be. He knows our yesterdays and our tomorrows. He knows what we said, he knows what we thought, he knows what we are thinking, and he knows what we're going to say before we even say it. Now this is known, by the way, this is the theology word for it, as omniscience. Class, say that with me. Omniscience. Omni means all. Shunt, S-C-I-E-N-T, means to know. Okay, so to know all. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. Here's A.W. Pink describing this. God knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. That's the God of heaven, okay? He knows it all. And David now is writing his song, you know, picking the melody on the harp, whatever he is doing, and he begins to think about the fact that God knows everything, and he celebrates it. He applies it to his own life. He says, you know, if God knows everything, it means that he knows, he knows the day that I'm living today. He knows when I woke up today. He knows what I'm thinking today. He knows what I'm experiencing and what I'm feeling today. 
He knows all of that. And David doesn't just go, well, that's a very profound thought. No, he writes a song about it. He celebrates that the God of heaven knows everything about me. And by the way, we should celebrate that too. He knows everything about you, friend. I mean, all of it. The stuff that if a camera was watching and if your heart was to speak, every thought that you've ever had, he knows those as well. He knows us down to that level of detail. He knows everything. He is omniscient. The language here is so beautiful. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Behind, before, and over. In fact, the word there for lay your hand upon me, it means literally you cup your hand. Okay, you cup your hand. Now I got thinking about this and my Facebook feed threw up a picture from some years ago and I thought I would show it to you because I think it pictures what he is saying here. Okay, That was four years ago. My daughter... And she was only, I think in that picture, she maybe was like a month old, something like that. And when you hold a child, don't you, 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 you sort of have to cup your hand, right? You do this number and they're going to fall off. You sort of, you sort of cup them and you, you hem them in before and behind. You lay your hand upon them. That is the picture and that's what I was doing there. She goes to preschool Tuesday. How did that happen? <laughs> We had the preview for the preschool this last week, and I'm just walking around like, it's like a daze, it's surreal, you know, something's not right here. <laughs> it's two days a week. <laughs> he holds us in the palm of his hand. He, he, now, God doesn't have a hand. It's, it's poetic language, Right? He cups his hand. He accommodates the shape of our life, who we are, and he hems us in. And this, the picture of security, that the all-knowing God cares for me. Nothing happened in our yesterday that keeps us from him. Nothing will happen in our tomorrows that he does not already know. His eye is on us. His hand is upon us. That's worth singing about, don't you think? Our God knows everything. He goes on now in verse seven. Our God is everywhere. And this is just beautiful. Listen to just the language. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness will cover me, and the light be about me, about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. This section introduces a second quality of God. This is another omni. This is another one of these theology words. But I'll tell you, if you ever take a theology exam and you miss this one, then you deserve to flunk. Here's the word. Omnipresent. Say it with me, class. Omnipresent. Omni, omniscient. Omnipresent. Any guesses what omnipresent means? Omni's all. Present is 
present. (laughs) So this one you better get right, that God is present everywhere all the time. Always present. Now here's where we have to draw a fine line here because you can easily slip, you can overstate this. And you can think God is everywhere, but you can communicate it like God is everything. And that is not the case. Okay, that would be known as pantheism. Religion like Hinduism would teach a pantheism, that God is everything. The thing is God. No, the thing isn't God. The thing is a created thing. And Orthodox Christian teaching always makes a distinction between the creator and the created thing, lest it be a pantheism. So God is not everything, but he is everywhere. And here the text says, where shall I go from your spirit? How is God present everywhere in this created order? It is not Jesus, because Jesus dwells in a body. He is incarnate. And we find from this and other teachings in in Scripture that God's presence is via the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God, and the Holy Spirit is everywhere. And we especially celebrate this because there is not a lot in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit, but this is one of them. So savor it, teaching about the Holy Spirit, that this Holy Spirit is everywhere. And David meditates now on He just begins thinking, you know, what does it mean that God is everywhere? Like, everywhere, all the time, everywhere. And he thinks about it in terms of extremes, right? So he says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there, heaven being the highest place. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol is the place of the dead or the lowest place, you are there. Okay, so do you hear that? Do you see where he's going here? If I go to the highest place, you're there. If I go to the lowest place, you're there. He goes on to say this. If I have the wings of the morning, class, where does the sun rise? In the east, okay. It's a toughie, I know. It rises in the east. Okay, so if I have the wings of the morning, if I, if I could fly as far as the sun goes to the east, You're there. Then he says, if I go to the uttermost part of the sea. Okay, now here's geography lesson. Some of you are like, I I got out of school for a reason. Quickly. In Israel, in David's Israel, still true today, what's the west border of Israel? It is the Mediterranean Sea. And so for them, the sea was like as far west as you could go. Here, For us, we would say from the Atlantic to the Pacific. For them, they say, from the, where the sun rises in the morning to the furthest that that sea out there in the west can go. In other words, east to west, you're there. High, low, you're there. Even there, your hand guides me. And it's intended to be a comfort, okay? I can't go anywhere, even to the extremes, geographically speaking. And you're not going to be there. You are there. Verses 11 and 12, how about day and night? Are you, like, are, are you there in the day? Okay, I kind of get that. Are you there when it's dark? Are you there when it's scary? Yes, because for God, dark is light to him. doesn't matter. He is there. 
Now you might say, well, that's pretty self-evident, isn't it? And maybe you grew up in Christian faith or you've been a Christian a long time. The omnipresence of God is something that we just, we were aware of, we sort of believe, but not everybody does. In fact, I can think of one Old Testament prophet in particular who did not get the omnipresence of God. Do you remember? Who am I talking about? Like, man, this is feeling like school. Well, there was this guy, and God said, I want you to go and I want you to preach against these Ninevites. Okay, the Assyrians, the dreaded Assyrians. I want you to preach against those Ninevites. And Jonah, who was himself a racist, said, I want the Assyrians getting the grace of God. In fact, I am going to fix this. And he went down to Joppa and he bought a ticket and he got a boat that was going as far the opposite direction as you could go. And he gets on that boat and he thinks, man, I am getting away from God's will. I am getting away from God. Now, I don't want to ruin the story. <laughs> and I would encourage you to read it. I mean, it really, it's, a, it's a whale of a story. It really is. <laughs> but God is everywhere. Everywhere, all the time. Now, this is a wonderful comfort. But is there also not sort of a, we might perceive it as a downside. It's one thing to think, God is with me in my, my strengths, in my good times. Like, I go to church and God is with me. Or I have a family worship time, or I'm praying, or whatever it is, God's with me. I'm on the icy road in northwest Indiana in the blizzard, and I pray that prayer, God, get me home. What a comfort that God is with me in those moments. But this also means that God is with us in our not-so-good moments. That God is there when we are out of his will. That God is there when we are involved in something, thinking something, doing something, that we don't want to think that God is with us, observing and seeing. And yet even there, God is there. We cannot escape his presence. As Spurgeon said, I may, leave, I may leave thy path, but thou never leavest mine. Our God is everywhere all the time. And then David moves into some of the most sublime words that have ever been written. I mean, these are just absolutely magnificent. Very familiar words to many of us, I'm sure. Verse 13. He continues his reflection, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them, the thoughts that God has for us. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. That's just gorgeous writing, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to look at that and say, Wow, that is really beautiful. And we see David here, he's, he's just reflecting on God's care over his life, like his whole life. And not just since 
you know, he was anointed by Samuel or in the times where Saul was chasing him or when he was fighting Goliath as a, as a young boy. But he goes all the way back, even to those times when he was being formed in his mother's womb, that even there the presence of God was. And now all of a sudden, I hope you realize, Psalm 139 has incredible ethical implications. David goes into the womb and sees the power and the presence of God in his life. And we'll get to those in a moment, but let's just marvel at the language. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Realize, David is writing this 3,000 years ago. He's writing this, you know, he didn't have the science of today, and he didn't have all the things that we know about DNA and how those little children are formed. He didn't know any of that. And yet, even today, could we write something more fitting and beautiful and accurate than what these words are? You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together, stitched me together in my mother's womb. Now, I have personally witnessed two births. And I know that we know a lot about things that they didn't know back then. But even today, we cannot explain human personhood. We cannot explain really the essence and the nature of life. Yes, we know about DNA and they're doing things in laboratories, but we still don't know how does life begin. How does personhood and personality form? We know the DNA that makes fingerprints and fingernails, but what about gifts and talents that form who we are? In the same family, you can have three kids, right? You'd think, well, they'll be clones, they'll be exactly the same. They can be as, you know, totally different, right, parents? You're like, how did these become out of the same womb? They're so different. Further, we have, with modern technology, we have pictures of those embryos forming and just the frailty of life as those little children are being formed in a mother's womb. You've probably seen some of these pictures, but I'm going to put them up here in light of Psalm 139 and just think of the language that David is using to describe these moments in, in, in the womb. I mean, so... Sweet and innocent. Next slide, if you would. Okay. I mean, look, look at that. Okay. Look at, how'd that blood vessel decide that it's going to do that? How did that brain and that body and that person become who he or she is? Next slide. It's a miracle, isn't it? Knit together in my mother's womb. And David's summary, you look at this, here's his summary. He never saw that picture. And yet, his summary is this. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And the ethical reality, friends, is that inspired by the Holy Spirit, David is reflecting upon his personhood and God's power and presence in the womb 
which means that that child in the womb is not merely a clump of cells, a part of the mother's body like her knee or her elbow, that that child is uniquely being formed by the power of God himself. In fact, the Bible, the Bible explains why human personhood is so unique and valuable. And it has to do with what God places within us as human beings. This is Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And David that now reflects upon even those times in the womb and says, I was being formed and made by God himself. That child in the womb is part of the mother's body, but is separate from the mother's body. He or she is in her mother's womb, but has a different DNA, could have a different blood type, is unique in personhood from the mother, bearing the image of God while becoming a fully formed human being. And because that child is made in the image of God, the Bible says to do violence against the image of God, the Bible calls it murder. I am taking the life of one who has been bequeathed the unique dignity of bearing the image of Almighty God. And that is not a small thing. Therefore, to destroy an unborn child is to do violence against an image bearer. It is to undo what God is doing and forming. It is to destroy what God is creating. And that is why, maybe you've wondered, why do these Christians care so much about the issue of abortion uh, around the world? Here's why. Because the book that is for us, the authority tells us that everybody is made in the image of God, that God made everyone, and that that began at the beginning of life. And even those moments in the womb, God is working and forming, and that child bears the image of God. The unborn child is being fearfully and wonderfully made by God himself. And therefore, that life is valuable. Are you with me? Okay. Can we say a collective amen on that truth? Okay. Now, a question. Is God only forming white children? Is God only making Asian children? Is God only wonderfully and beautifully making black children, Hispanic children, Indian children? And if God is forming that image in the womb, how should we treat them outside the womb? You see how it's complete hypocrisy to say we stand for the sanctity of life and then to be a racist. You cannot 
do that. It is logically, biblically, theologically, absolutely hypocritical to care for the child in the womb and then judge people based on some category outside the womb, okay? You just can't do it. It is, it is the same God who gives the unborn child worth and value that gives the born child, teenager, young adult, adult, senior citizen value as an image bearer as well. They all go together. Which brings us to Charlottesville, Virginia, a week ago. And since then, so much has been said, unless you've had your head in the sand, it has dominated the news over the last week. And there's been further protests and counter-protests and opinion articles and, you know, all of the chatter that has been going on on this issue has been extraordinary. And that is why the church has to say something. Because, especially in categories like this, okay, we're not debating tax policy, we're talking about the value of human beings and what it means to be a human being. The church had better say something or we move more irrelevant to the culture that we're trying to reach. And on this issue, we are coming at this from a position of strength. The world does not have an answer, okay? It's, uh, I think Chesterton has said that, that uh, the modern man has his feet firmly planted in midair, okay? But on this issue now, they are playing, they're playing in our sandbox, okay? Because the Bible so clearly and frankly so wonderfully and beautifully teaches and describes what it means to be a human being. Think of that. Over all these thousands of years, really the debate is what does it mean to be a human being? We haven't figured out who we are because we don't start with divine revelation and what God has told us. And this is where Psalm 139 is so helpful and it reinforces broadly the teaching of Scripture that human personhood is a God thing. And it begins at the very beginning of our existence. He grants to us, not because we deserve it, this is God's plan, will, and grace, he grants to us an exalted status in the world and in the universe that the animals and the plants and the mountains and the stars, they don't have it, but we have it. That God grants us status as image bearers and then forms our bodies and makes us who we are. Every one of us, absolutely unique. Think of it, all the billions of people that have lived in this world, there has never been somebody exactly like you. Not one. Your fingerprint is different than everybody else. Your DNA signature is different than anybody else. There is nobody in this whole world like you. God made you absolutely unique. Formed you right down to the core of who you are. So where then does racism and bigotry and the impulse to drive your car into a crowd of people that you disagree with come from? Well, let's go back in the story of the Bible, because this is merely the next chapter in the long story where this has been repeated over and over and over again. Satan goes to Eve to tempt her and says, says this essential question, 
or he tells her, if you eat of the tree, you get to be like God. That was the temptation. You get to leave being who you are and you get to exalt yourself and be like God. The deification of me and the exaltation of self is the root of what sin is. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How have I fallen short of the glory of God? I was made to live for the glory of God. But human beings don't live naturally for the glory of God. We live for the glory of ourselves. And we exalt ourselves and we deify ourselves. We ultimately worship ourselves. And so this feud that's going on in our country right now, we gotta see it the way that it is. This is not ultimately about white supremacy or black supremacy or purple supremacy. It is not ultimately about the civil war or statues or flags. What happened in Charlottesville is what happened when sinners worship themselves and deny the reality of God and its reflection in fellow human beings, okay? Or to say it this way, it is a functional atheism hiding behind a political ideology. I, I went over this with the pastors on Friday. They said, you better put that up and just leave it there for a while because people are going to need to think about it. It is a functional atheism because if there is no God, then none of us have inherent worth or value. And I can treat you jolly well the way that I want to treat you. And if I want you out of here, I'm going to take you out. Why? Because you're nothing. But Christianity comes along and says everybody's something. And that something does not have anything to do with their skin color, their family, their social status, whatever it is. They, we are something because there is a God who made us and formed us and granted us inherent worth and value. So we condemn what happened in Virginia that day. But we have to condemn it for the right reasons. And the right reason is not where I land politically. And the right reason is not because of whatever my skin color is. The right reason to condemn it is because of the glory of God granted to every human in every womb, every ethnicity, every age and stage, male and female, all valued because of God. That is why we condemn it. And to see then that, that what happened there it was very much about supremacy or supremacists. But it was mankind once again being the supremacist. Remember in the story, we go back to the beginning, this, kid, this is just the same thing over and over and over again. Cain and Abel, two brothers, they go and they offer worship to God. God accepts Abel's worship and sacrifice. He doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. We come to find out in the story, Cain was a supremacist. And he could not stand Abel having supremacy over him. And what was the result of it? He murders him. And murder and hatred and violence is always the result of mankind's supremacist or supremacy. So I want you to realize this is not a skin issue, this is a sin issue. 
It is a sin issue. And so Christianity then comes to things like this, and we do not align with the alt-right. We do not align with the alt-left. Christianity stands outside of that and says, we're alt-cross. Okay? We're not buying into that. We're not buying into that. We are buying into this. And to realize that the story of Christianity, the, the message of Christianity, is a message of peace. But it is a peace that comes at the cost of our repentance and our turning away from all of that glory of me stuff and seeing the glory of Christ and his death on the cross. And the message of Christianity is that peace does not begin horizontally, it begins vertically. The first peace that I must have is peace with my creator. And when Jesus came and died on the cross, he died to establish peace with God. This is Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the alt peace that Jesus offers through repentance and faith in him, a turning from sin and a believing in Christ's work on the cross, creates vertical peace with God. And that now creates a capacity for horizontal peace amongst people with different colored skin and different backgrounds and different this and that, yet we can have peace with one another. This is Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, who made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Racism, friends, is sin, it is from hell, it is satanic, it is atheistic, it denies what God wills, which is an eternity, heaven and a new earth, populated by people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That is the will of God. That is what is to come. Racism denies that. That is why we sing red and yellow, black and white. They are all precious in his sight. We are not to judge each other by any of these categories. So while we condemn every form of self-supremacy and self-exaltation, we as a church have to also promote and point to a Savior who is our peace and who creates peace with God for all who trust in him. And finally, I would say that we have to look at all of these things with a profound sadness. We live in a broken world. I've said it before, it's almost as if, you look at the world right now, it's almost as if the world needs a savior. And once again, we're so glad to say that there is one, and his name is Jesus. And all of this rancor and all of the fuming and all of the hatred we have to look at I think rightly the seeds of all of that even driving in a car into a crowd of people the seed of that sin of hatred lies within my own heart naturally we are all sinners by nature by birth by action and this is what I think makes the ending of Psalm 139 so fitting. Here's the, here's the end of the psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my mind and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. And may that be our response. We condemn, but we do so with a view of our own sinfulness, apart from the grace of God, to whom be forever praised. Amen. Would you stand with me for prayer? Our Father, Father of all mankind, maker of heaven and earth, maker of who we are, right there in the womb from the beginning, hallowed be your name. Father, we pray that your kingdom, your glory would come. We pray that over our church, we pray that over our homes, we pray that over our community, we pray that over our country. Lord, your kingdom is a kingdom of peace, a kingdom not of darkness and hate, but of light and love. Father, how our country needs that light. Jesus, be the light of the world. Be the light of the United States of America. How we need that revelation. Father, we need renewal. We need revival. We need change. And we pray that it would begin with us. Forgive us for the sins of racism, bigotry, judging others, by categories that you have created and delight in. Father, forgive us for self-sins of hating our bodies, hating ourselves, denying that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. May this begin with us, God. Search our hearts. See if there's any wicked way in us. Lead us in the path everlasting. And Jesus, be honored be glorified. We pray in your high and holy name. Amen. Well, it's a tough word, but it's an important one. And I want to challenge each of us to, can you listen to the news this week, biblically? Like, can you read the paper through the grid of scripture and especially what we've been talking about right now, let's keep it fresh in our minds. And let's be this alt community in Northwest Indiana. You know, we are, we are a multi-ethnic church. What an opportunity that we have to show love in that way, to model what the country needs desperately right now, and to love one another. So that's my call, okay? Let's be that here in Northwest Indiana, and may God be praised.